welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Justice. Residential schools inflicted profound injustices on Aboriginal people. Aboriginal parents were forced, often under pressure from the police, to give up their children to the schools. Children were taken far from their communities to live in frightening custodial institutions which felt like prisons. The children who attended residential schools were often treated as if they were offenders and were often victimized. This pattern of disproportionate imprisonment and victimization of Aboriginal people continues to this day. The continued failure of the justice system denies Aboriginal people the safety and opportunities that most Canadians take for granted. Redress to the racist and colonial views that inspired the schools and effective and long-term solutions to the crime problems that plague too many Aboriginal communities call for increased use of Aboriginal justice based on Aboriginal laws and healing practices. To understand the full legacy of the harms of the schools, it is important to examine how the Canadian legal system responded to residential school abuse. Relatively few prosecutions for abuse resulted from police investigations. In some cases, the federal government actually compromised these investigations and the independence of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, to defend its own position in civil cases brought against it by residential school survivors. RCMP independence compromised. In late 1994, the RCMP established the E-Division Task Force to investigate allegations of abuse in British Columbia residential schools. There is evidence, however, that RCMP investigations into abuse were adversely influenced by the federal government's strategic interests in defending itself in the many civil lawsuits commenced by former students. For example, the government demanded that the RCMP hand over its investigation files related to abuse at the Cooper Island School. Despite some initial objections, the RCMP did eventually turn over the files. This was done without due regard for the privacy rights of the complainants in the case, and in effect, gave the government an advantage in defending itself. When the police force requested the return of these files, the government declined, and then further refused to disclose the information it had received to the survivors who had brought the civil lawsuits. Affidavits filed by RCMP officers suggested the federal government's interest in defending itself in civil litigation interfered with police investigations into crimes committed at the residential schools, although a judge eventually ordered that survivors should have the same access to RCMP criminal investigation material regarding offenses at the Cooper Island School as the government, the whole affair meant survivors could reasonably conclude that the RCMP was acting as an agent of the federal government rather than as an impartial enforcer of the law. Call to action number 25. We call upon the federal government to establish a written policy that reaffirms the independence of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to investigate crimes in which the government has its own interest as a potential or real party in civil litigation. Unnecessary insistence on corroboration. 
the RCMP E-Division Task Force Final Report notes that a very common situation that kept occurring over and over again was that Crown Counsel refused to prosecute without corroboration in the form of physical evidence. This approach was based on an unwillingness to take the complainant's own evidence as sufficient to justify a prosecution. It betrays an unwillingness to take the evidence of Aboriginal people as being worthy of belief. At best, the refusal to prosecute without corroboration was based on a belief that the denial of any accused person who occupied a position of authority at the schools would be sufficient to create a reasonable doubt about guilt. Since 1982, the requirement for corroboration was specifically dropped for sexual offenses, and it was never required for non-sexual offenses. The Commission is concerned that a continued insistence on corroboration has resulted in discriminatory treatment of Aboriginal victims. Few Criminal Prosecutions the Commission has been able to identify fewer than 50 convictions stemming from allegations of abuse at residential schools. This figure is insignificant compared with the nearly 38,000 claims of sexual and serious physical abuse that were submitted as part of the Independent Assessment Process IAP, set up under the settlement agreement. Although there were not many prosecutions for sexual abuse, there are even fewer charges of physical abuse brought against former school staff. The RCMP's own report suggests that the E-Division Task Force viewed physical assaults against Aboriginal children as being less serious than sexual abuse. The RCMP attributed complaints by former students about assaults as evidence of a culture clash between the rigid, spare-the-rod-spoil-the-child Christian attitude and the more permissive native traditional of child-rearing. This preconception undoubtedly affected the number of prosecutions that occurred for physical abuse at the schools. Civil Litigation Having generally failed to find justice through police investigations and criminal prosecutions, residential school survivors increasingly turned to the civil justice system in the 1990s, bringing lawsuits against abusers as well as the federal government and the churches that operated the schools. The Canadian legal system, however, was prepared to consider only some of the harms that survivors suffered, generally those harms caused by sexual and sometimes physical abuse. It refused to consider on the merits of survivors' claims relating to loss of language, culture, family, attachment, and violation of treaty rights to education. The Canadian legal system refused to consider the claims that survivors brought on behalf of their parents and their children. It also refused to provide remedies for the collective harms that residential schools caused to Aboriginal nations and communities. Residential school litigation has been extremely complex, expensive, and lengthy. It has been especially difficult for the survivors, many of whom were re-victimized through explicit questioning and adversarial treatment by the government of Canada, the churches, and even their own lawyers. Limitation Periods Within the Canadian justice system, complainants in civil proceedings have a limitation period of time in which to file suit. If they wait too long after the harm they have suffered, they may not be allowed to pursue their claim because of a provincial statute of limitation. Although statutes of limitation can protect defendants in civil lawsuits, they can also have the effect of denying plaintiffs the opportunity to have the truth of their allegation determined in court. This is most dramatically true for child victims, who have neither the means nor the knowledge to pursue claims of harm until much later, when the time period for a claim may very well have run out. A statute of limitation defense has to be raised by the defendant. In its 2000 report on responding to child abuse in institutions, the Law Commission of Canada recommended that the federal government should not rely solely on statute of limitation defenses. Nevertheless, the government of Canada and churches have frequently and successfully raised these defenses in residential school litigation. The Commission believes that the federal government's successful use of statute of limitation defenses has meant that Canadian courts and Canadians in general have considered only a small part of the harms of residential schools, mostly those caused by sexual abuse. Some provinces have amended their limitation statutes to enable civil prosecution for a wider range of offenses. We urge others to follow suit. Call to action number 26. 
We call upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to review and amend their respective statutes of limitations to ensure that they conform with the principle that governments and other entities cannot rely on limitation defenses to defend legal actions of historical abuse brought by Aboriginal people. Educating Lawyers the criminal prosecution of abusers in residential schools and the subsequent civil lawsuits were a difficult experience for survivors. The courtroom experience was made worse by the fact that many lawyers did not have adequate cultural, historical, or psychological knowledge to deal with the painful memories that the survivors were forced to reveal. The lack of sensitivity that lawyers often demonstrated in dealing with residential school survivors resulted, in some cases, in the survivors not receiving appropriate legal service. These experiences prove the need for lawyers to develop a greater understanding of Aboriginal history and culture, as well as the multifaceted legacy of residential schools. Calls to action number 27. We call upon the Federation of Law Societies of Canada to ensure that lawyers receive appropriate cultural competency training, which includes the history and legacy of residential schools, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, treaties and Aboriginal rights, Indigenous law, and Aboriginal Crown relations. This will require skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. We call upon law schools in Canada to require all law students to take a course in Aboriginal people and the law, which includes the history and legacy of residential schools, the United Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, treaties and Aboriginal rights, Indigenous law, and Aboriginal Crown relations. This will require skill-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. Aftermath of the Settlement Agreement During the 1990s, the number of civil lawsuits against Canada and the churches that ran the schools steadily increased. Many of these claims were combined into class actions that were certified by provincial courts. In May 2005, the Government of Canada appointed former Supreme Court Justice Frank Iacobucci as its chief negotiator to help reach a settlement agreement among the many parties involved in litigation. Representatives from Aboriginal communities, church groups, the federal government, and survivors represented by various law firms. The parties reached an agreement in principle in November 2005. The details of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement were finalized and approved by the federal cabinet on May 10, 2006. The thousands of legal claims made against the federal government and the churches were concluded and settled under the terms of the settlement agreement. Because the settlement agreement would involve the termination of a number of class action proceedings that the courts had already authorized, it was necessary for courts in most provinces and territories to consider whether the settlement agreement was a fair resolution of the claims and, in particular, whether it adequately protected the interests of all the class members. The settlement agreement included a common experience payment, CEP, for everyone who attended one of the residential schools listed in the agreement. In addition to the CEP, an independent assessment process, IAP, was established to pay compensation to those who suffered sexual or serious physical assaults, such as severe beating, whipping, and second-degree burning at the schools. The process also included compensation for assaults by other students if they were the result of a lack of reasonable supervision. The IAP was designed to be an easier process for complainants than litigation. Hearings are held in private with cultural supports for the complainants and health supports provided by Health Canada. In contrast to the protracted nature of much civil litigation, hearings are supposed to be held within nine months, with decisions due shortly after the hearings. In their statements to the Commission, some survivors have expressed concerns about the IAP abuse hearing process because it did not allow them to face their abusers directly. Bernard Catchway, a former student at Pine Creek Residential School in Manitoba, told the commission, You know, my abuser's still alive. I think she's 89 years old, according to when I went to my hearing three years ago. I wanted her so badly to come to that hearing, you know. But because of the age and because of her, I guess, incompetency, you know, she chose not to be there. 
I would have loved for her to meet her at that time to basically say, you know, whatever it was to make her do things to us, I was going to say, I forgive you, but I never got a chance to say that. Other claimants, such as Amelia Galagos Thomas, a former student at Seychelles Residential School in British Columbia, criticized the IAP's delay in hearing and settling claims. I've been waiting five years now for my appeal and it hasn't happened yet, and it's almost time for them to stop giving money out to us. And they opened up all our wounds. For what? To turn us down? And some people are dying. My sister's doing drugs because she's tired of waiting. She's living on the streets. So why did they do this to us again? They hurt us again. They shouldn't go back on their word to us. They already hurt us. Stop hurting us. Exclusions from the settlement. Not all survivors of residential school abuse were included in the settlement agreement. For example, day school students, many Métis students, and pupils from schools in Newfoundland and Labrador have been excluded, as have students who attended government-funded schools that were not identified as residential schools. These exclusions have led to new civil lawsuits against the government. The Commission urges all parties to seek expedited means of resolving this litigation. Call to action number 29. We call upon the parties, and in particular the federal government, to work collaboratively with plaintiffs not included in the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement to have disputed legal issues determined expeditiously on an agreed set of facts. Overrepresentation of Aboriginal People in Prison The dramatic overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in Canada's prison system continues to expand. In 1995-1996, to 1996, Aboriginal people made up of 16% of all those sentenced to custody. By 2011 to 2012, that number had grown to 28% of all admissions to sentenced custody, even though Aboriginal people make up only 4% of the Canadian adult population. The situation of women is even more disproportionate. In 2011 to 2012, 43% of admissions of women to sentenced custody were Aboriginal. The causes of the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people are complex. The convictions of Aboriginal offenders frequently result from an interplay of factors, including the intergenerational legacy of residential schools. Aboriginal overrepresentation in prison reflects a systemic bias in the Canadian justice system. Once Aboriginal persons are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted, they are more likely to be sentenced to prison than non-Aboriginal people. In 2011 to 2012, Aboriginal people made up 21% of those who received probation or conditional sentences, under which a defendant is found guilty but allowed to remain in the community. Parliament has recently passed legislation to prescribe mandatory minimum sentences of imprisonment for certain offenses. Judges are required to impose these mandatory minimums. Additional restrictions have also been placed on community sanctions. These decisions have further contributed to the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people in prison. It is assumed that locking up offenders makes communities safer, but there is no evidence to demonstrate that this is indeed the case. There are concerns that Aboriginal people are not receiving culturally appropriate rehabilitative programs in federal prisons, that they are even less likely to have access to such programs in provincial correctional institutions for those people serving sentences of less than two years. Violence and criminal offending are not inherent in Aboriginal people. They result from very specific experiences that Aboriginal people have endured, including the intergenerational legacy of residential schools. It should not be surprising that those who experienced and witnessed very serious violence against Aboriginal children in the schools frequently became accustomed to violence later in life. One intergenerational survivor recalled that her mother never talked about it very much or never expressed it. And she was very quiet, and she had issues with alcohol, and I saw that. And that was basically the only time that she was really aggressive, I guess, is during those times when she drank. And my father was also very aggressive. It was a very violent home, actually. My brothers used to fight each other, and my brothers would fight my dad, and my mom and my dad would fight, and a lot of violence in the home. Actually, to the point where my brother, my oldest brother, killed my one of our other brothers to be in the home. 
when I was nine and I saw the whole thing. The commission heard numerous accounts of the hardships experienced by former residential school students who became involved with the justice system. For many, there were painful parallels between their time in school and their time in jail. For Daniel Andre, the road from Grolier Hall in Inuvik in the Northwest Territories led, inevitably, to jail. I knew that I needed to help to get rid of whatever happened to me in residential school. Everywhere I went, everything I did, all the jobs I had, all the towns I lived in, all the people I met, always brought me back to being in a residential school and being humiliated and beaten and ridiculed and told I was a piece of garbage. I was not good enough. I was like a dog. So one of the scariest things for me being in jail is being humiliated in front of everybody, being made laughed at, which they do often because they're just like, that's just the way they are. And a lot of them are like survival of the fittest. And like, if you show weakness, they'll pick on you even more. And I had to survive. I had to be strong enough to survive. I had to build up a system where I became a jerk. I became a bad person. I became an asshole. But I survived and learned all those things to survive. It should not be surprising that those who were sexually abused in the schools as children sometimes perpetuated sexual violence later in their lives. It should not be surprising that those who were exposed to poor education and to spiritual and cultural abuse in the schools later turned to alcohol and drugs as a means to cope and try to forget. The consequences for many students and their families were tragic. Grace Campbell is an intergenerational survivor. When I was drinking, a lot of things happened to me. I had to do things, and a lot of times I just about got killed, and then I thought it was easy. Easy drinking, easy to get the way I was living, and I didn't like it. I was selling my body, and I didn't like it. At the time, I didn't know it, but when I look back, some of those creeps I hung with, men and guns and everything, like, you know. I was losing my drinking buddies, though. They were being murdered and dying. Action is required now to overcome the legacy of residential schools that has played a major role in the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people. Call to action number 30. We call upon federal, provincial, and territorial governments to commit to eliminating the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in custody over the next decade and to issue detailed annual reports that monitor and evaluate the progress in doing so. Community Programs in 1996, the Parliament legislated principles that would allow offenders who might otherwise be imprisoned to serve their sentences in the community. A centerpiece of these reforms was Section 718.2 sub e of the Criminal Code, which instructs judges that all available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances should be considered for all offenders, with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. In 1999, in Regina and Gladue, the Supreme Court stated that Section 718.2 sub e of the Criminal Code was enacted in response to the alarming evidence that Aboriginal peoples were incarcerated disproportionately to non-Aboriginal people in Canada. The Court stressed that this section is a remedial provision, enacted specifically to oblige the judiciary to make special efforts to find reasonable alternatives to imprisonment for Aboriginal offenders, and to take into account the background and systemic factors that bring Aboriginal people into contact with the justice system. In some jurisdictions, the Gladue decision has resulted in the production of more extensive pre-sentence, or Gladue reports, that detail the background and contextual circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. These reports help inform judges' sentencing decisions and are meant to encourage alternative options to incarceration. However, bringing these reports to court has not been without difficulty and controversy. Some jurisdictions provide few resources for the intensive, specialized, and culturally sensitive work that is necessary to produce an adequate Gladue report, despite the clear mandate given by the Supreme Court. In 2012, the Supreme Court revisited and reaffirmed Gladue. 
In Regina and Apelli, the Supreme Court pointed out that some judges had erred in their application of GLADU by concluding that it did not apply to serious offenses or that it required an offender to demonstrate a causal connection between the commission of the crime and the legacy of residential schools or other background or contextual factors that help explain why an aboriginal offender is before the courts. Even if excellent GLADU reports were prepared from coast to coast, they would still fail to make a difference in the amount of aboriginal overrepresentation in the prison system without the addition of realistic alternatives to imprisonment, including adequate resources for intensive community programs that can respond to the conditions that caused aboriginal offending. Call to action number 31. We call upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to provide sufficient and stable funding to implement and evaluate community sanctions that will provide realistic alternatives to imprisonment for Aboriginal offenders and respond to the underlying causes of offending. A failure to provide sufficient and stable resources for the community and treatment programs that are necessary to implement GLADU and APELI helps explain why those decisions have not slowed increasing Aboriginal overrepresentation in prison. In addition to these significant changes, there are now new barriers to implementing effective and just alternative sentences for Aboriginal offenders. Mandatory Minimum Sentences One of the most dramatic examples of the trend toward mandatory minimum sentence is the Safe Streets and Communities Act, Bill C-10, which came into force in 2012. The Act specifies minimum sentences that judges must impose for certain crimes. As a result of the new legislation, certain offenses are no longer eligible for a conditional sentence. Bill C-10 and other similar criminal code amendments have undermined the 1996 reforms that require judges to consider all reasonable alternatives to imprisonment, with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. The Commission believes that the recent introduction of mandatory minimum sentences and restrictions on conditional sentences will increase Aboriginal overrepresentation in prison. Such developments are preventing judges from implementing community sanctions, even when they are consistent with the safety of the community, and even when they have a much greater potential than imprisonment to respond to the intergenerational legacy of residential schools that often results in offenses by Aboriginal persons. Call to action number 32. We call upon the federal government to amend the criminal code to allow trial judges, upon giving reasons, to depart from mandatory minimum sentences and restrictions on the use of conditional sentences. Offenders with Fetal Alcohol Syndrome Disorder There is another link between the substance abuse that has plagued many residential school survivors and the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people. Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, FASD, is a permanent brain injury caused when a woman's consumption of alcohol during pregnancy affects her fetus. The disabilities associated with FASD include memory impairments, problems with judgment and abstract reasoning, and poor adaptive functioning. It is a debilitating cognitive impairment, which children must live with for the rest of their lives through no fault of their own. A study done for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation drew links among the intergenerational trauma of residential schools, alcohol addictions, and FASD. The study concluded that the residential school system contributed to the central risk factor involved, substance abuse, but also to factors shown to be linked to alcohol abuse, such as child and adult physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, mental health problems, and family dysfunction. About 1% of Canadian children are born with some form of disability related to prenatal alcohol consumption, but estimates from Canada and the United States suggest that 15-20% to 20 of prisoners have FASD. A recent Canadian study found that offenders with FASD had much higher rates of criminal involvement than those without FASD, including more juvenile and adult convictions. The Commission believes there is a need to take urgent measures both to prevent FASD and to better manage its harmful consequences. There is a clear need in Aboriginal communities for more programming that addresses the problems of addiction in FASD.
Calls to action number 33. We call upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to recognize as high priority the need to address and prevent fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and to develop, in collaboration with Aboriginal people, FASD preventive programs that can be delivered in a culturally appropriate manner. It is challenging for courts to deal with offenders with FASD because obtaining an official diagnosis contains a long and costly process of multidisciplinary referrals. Even if trial judges have been educated about the symptoms of FASD, they are generally unable to take notice of FASD without evidence of a diagnosis. Clearly, better diagnostic tools are needed, accompanied by sufficient resources for intensive community programs, as realistic alternatives to jail, and as support for people living with FASD to avoid repeating conflicts with the law. The recent enactment of mandatory minimum sentences for some offenses further complicates the situation of offenders with FASD because it denies judges the flexibility to consider individual circumstances in their sentencing. There is a danger that prison will be used unnecessarily as another expensive crisis intervention for Aboriginal offenders with FASD, even though culturally appropriate supports to the community could often be a more appropriate approach. As well as amending mandatory minimum sentencing laws, the federal government can do much more to tailor correctional and parole resources to facilitate the reintegration of offenders with FASD into their communities. Call to action number 34. We call upon the governments of Canada, the provinces and territories to undertake reforms to the criminal justice system to better address the needs of offenders with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, including providing increased community resources and powers for courts to ensure that FASD is properly diagnosed and that appropriate community supports are in place for those with FASD, enacting statutory exemptions from mandatory minimum sentences of imprisonment for offenders affected by FASD, providing community, correctional, and parole resources to maximize the ability of people with FASD to live in the community, adopting appropriate evaluation mechanisms to measure the effectiveness of such programs and ensure community safety cultural services in prisons and jails. Studies based on interviews with Aboriginal inmates have confirmed that Aboriginal culture and spirituality can contribute to the healing of inmates, to increase self-esteem, and to positive changes in lifestyle that make release and reintegration a real possibility. Research suggests that recidivism rates for Aboriginal offenders who had participated in spiritual activities, such as sweat lodge ceremonies, were lower than for those who had not. However, Aboriginal people receive few services in provincial correctional facilities that are designed for those serving sentences of two years less a day or are awaiting trial. Only a few provinces, such as British Columbia, have Aboriginal justice strategies that include cultural awareness training for officials and contracting with Aboriginal communities to provide spiritual leadership, counseling, and cultural programming for prisoners. The need for cultural programs in jail was expressed by a former residential school student who was an inmate at a correctional facility in Yellowknife. The survivor told the commission, It would be nice if our own people would come in here and teach us about life, you know, how to live. This is not the way of life for us. It's not the way for us people. But if they would teach a program like that, they will catch somebody for sure. There are some federal programs that appear to be working, but Aboriginal inmates do not have access to these programs in all parts of the country. For example, although Aboriginal healing lodges within correctional facilities have great potential to assist Aboriginal inmates, there are only four such lodges run by Correctional Services Canada and four run by Aboriginal communities under Section 81 of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act. Lack of funding and difficulties in recruiting and training staff are obstacles to successful expansion of the healing lodge resources. In addition, prisoners must be classified as minimum security to be eligible, and 90% of Aboriginal inmates are assigned medium or maximum security classification. Calls to action. Number 35. 
We call upon the federal government to eliminate barriers to the creation of additional Aboriginal healing lodges within the federal correctional system. Number 36. We call upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to work with Aboriginal communities to provide culturally relevant services to inmates on issues such as substance abuse, family and domestic violence, and overcoming the experience of having been sexually abused. Parole and Community Supports Aboriginal offenders face many challenges in obtaining parole from prison and beginning their transition back into the community. For many Aboriginal inmates seeking parole, their criminal history is a major factor held against them. Although some research has concluded that criminal history is a reliable risk predictor for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal inmates, systemic discrimination related to poverty and the legacy of residential schools undoubtedly disadvantages Aboriginal offenders. Just as some courts have the benefit of background and contextual information contained in pre-sentencing reports, parole hearings need a full understanding of an offender's circumstances when making their decisions. When the National Parole Board grants parole, correctional programming continues. The early stages of parole are often spent in a residential correctional facility, a halfway house. Although it is not a prison, a halfway house requires the offender to reside there and not be absent except under specific exceptions, for example, supervised absences or employment. It is intended as a traditional phase in an offender's parole, neither full incarceration nor full freedom in the community, with the goal of gradual reintegration into community. Unfortunately, there are too few halfway houses that provide programming specifically for Aboriginal offenders. Call to action number 37. We call upon the federal government to provide more supports for Aboriginal programming in halfway houses and parole services. Overrepresentation of youth. The youth justice system, perhaps even more than the adult criminal justice system, is failing Aboriginal families. Aboriginal girls make up 49% of the youth admitted to custody, and Aboriginal boys are 36% of those admitted to custody. The current law regarding young people accused of crimes is the Youth Criminal Justice Act, which was introduced in 2002. One of the key objectives of the act is to reserve jail for the most violent or habitual offenders. Even in such cases, one of the express goals of the youth criminal justice system is to address the circumstances underlying a young person's offending behavior in order to rehabilitate and reintegrate them. The Act has the flexibility to allow Aboriginal communities to have some measure of control over the youth process and to ensure Aboriginal perspectives are considered in individual cases. By many objective measures, the Youth Criminal Justice Act has been a success. Since it came into effect, there has been steady decline in youth crime, youth court caseloads, and youth supervised on community sentences and in custody. But one thing the Act has not succeeded in doing is reducing the overrepresentation of Aboriginal youth in the criminal justice system. The great vulnerability and disadvantage experienced by so many Aboriginal youth undoubtedly contribute to their overrepresentation, a factor that is intimately tied to the legacy of the residential schools. Many of today's Aboriginal children and youth live with the legacy of residential schools every day, as they struggle to deal with high rates of addictions, fetal alcohol disorder, mental health issues, family violence, incarceration of parents, and the intrusion of child welfare authorities. All these factors place them at greater risk of involvement with crime. The growing overrepresentation of Aboriginal youth in custody mirrors and is likely related to the even more dramatic overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in the care of child welfare agencies. Research in British Columbia found that 35.5% of youth in care are also involved in the youth justice system, as compared with only 4.4% of youth who are not in care. The Commission believes that there are ways to reduce the growing overrepresentation of Aboriginal youth, but that they will be found primarily outside the justice system. There is an urgent need to support Aboriginal families and alleviate the poverty experienced by many Aboriginal communities. 
The federal government should take the lead by committing the resources necessary to eliminating the overrepresentation of Aboriginal children and youth in care and custody. Part of that commitment should include collecting and publishing better data to measure progress. Call to action number 38. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to commit to eliminating the overrepresentation of Aboriginal youth in custody over the next decade. Victimization of Aboriginal people. An astonishing number of Aboriginal children were victims of crime in residential schools. By the end of 2014, the independent assessment process had resolved 30,939 sexual or serious physical abuse crimes. By the end of 2014, the independent assessment process had resolved 30,939 sexual or serious physical abuse claims, awarding $2.69 billion in compensation. Although not every case would have involved a criminal act, the vast majority did, easily allowing anyone to conclude that the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement involved the largest single recognition of criminal victimization in Canadian history. This victimization of children has carried profound and long-lasting effects. Ruby Firth, a former student at Stringer Hall, told the commission, All through my residential school, I was a victim. They put me in that frame of mind where I was a victim. I was four years old being a victim. Five years old, couldn't stop it. Six years old, couldn't stop it. Seven years old, couldn't stop it. So at some point, my brain is going to say, this is never going to stop. So that's what I was doing in my adult life too, because it didn't stop in my childhood. I was doing that in my adult. This is never going to stop. The justice system continues to fail Aboriginal victims of crime. There are few services available for Aboriginal victims of crime. Victim compensation schemes are often lacking and often fail to recognize the distinct needs of Aboriginal victims of crime. The statistics are startling. Aboriginal people are 58% more likely to be victimized by crime. Aboriginal women report being victimized by violent crime at a rate almost three times higher than non-Aboriginal women. 13% of Aboriginal women reported being victimized by violent crime in 2009. In the same year, 1 in 10 Aboriginal people reported being a victim of a non-spousal violent crime, more than double the rate reported by non-Aboriginal people. It is difficult to obtain accurate information about the rate of victimization in Aboriginal communities. According to some studies, less than one-third of victims of crime report their victimization to police, and police forces across the country do not have a consistent method for recording the Aboriginal identity of victims. Statistics Canada does not provide these kinds of supports necessary to permit some Aboriginal victims to comfortably disclose their experience to researchers. The most recent Statistics Canada data on homicide and family violence failed to report how many victims were Aboriginal, although older data suggests the homicide victimization rate of Aboriginal people between 1997 and 2000 was seven times that of non-Aboriginal people. Call to action number 39. We call upon the federal government to develop a national plan to collect and publish data on the criminal victimization of Aboriginal people, including data related to homicide and family violence victimization. This data should be used to guide the development and funding of culturally appropriate services for Aboriginal victims of crime and to help make measurable reductions in the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people among crime victims. Call to action number 40. We call upon all levels of government in collaboration with Aboriginal people to create adequately funded and accessible Aboriginal-specific victim programs and services with appropriate evaluation mechanisms. Violence against Aboriginal women and girls. The overrepresentation of Aboriginal women and girls among crime victims is particularly disturbing. Aboriginal women and girls are more likely than other women to experience risk factors for violence. They are disproportionately young, poor, unemployed, and likely to have been involved with the child welfare system and to live in a community marked by social disorder. 
Velma Jackson, who attended the Blue Quills Residential School in Alberta, told the commission her story. A lot of other girls my age were in Blue Quills, but I only know of one that survived. All of the rest are dead today. Some died on the street. Some died prostituting. Others into alcoholism got run over by vehicles. But their children are still alive today. I can't to this day wear a dress because of all the things that happened in this school. It was like a sanctuary for pedophiles, I would call it. That's probably why I blocked out so much of my life is because of that. The most disturbing aspect of this victimization is the extraordinary number of Aboriginal women who have been murdered or are reported as missing. A report by the RCMP released in 2014 found that between 1980 and 2012, 1,017 Aboriginal women and girls were killed and 164 were missing. 225 of these cases remain unsolved. More research is needed, but the available information suggests a devastating link between the large numbers of missing and murdered Aboriginal women and the many harmful background factors in their lives. These include overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in child welfare care, domestic and sexual violence, racism, poverty, and poor educational and health opportunities in Aboriginal communities, discriminatory practices against women related to band membership and Indian status, and inadequate supports for Aboriginal people in cities. This complex interplay of factors, many of which are part of the legacy of residential schools, need to be examined, as does the lack of success of police forces in solving these crimes against Aboriginal women. Calls to action number 41. We call upon the federal government in consultation with Aboriginal organizations to appoint a public inquiry into the causes of and remedies for the disproportionate victimization of Aboriginal women and girls. The inquiry's mandate would include investigation into missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls, links to the intergenerational legacy of residential schools. Strategies for change. Multi-pronged strategies are necessary to respond to the harmful legacy of residential schools as demonstrated in part by the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people among prisoners and crime victims. Compiling better data on Aboriginal overrepresentation in the justice system is a starting point. Collection of this data must be coupled with developing measurable goals for reducing this overrepresentation and providing the resources necessary to reach those goals. The approach must be a holistic and culturally appropriate one that addresses the need for improvements in health, education, and economic development in Aboriginal communities. Any strategy aimed at reducing Aboriginal offending and victimization must also include recognition of the rights of Aboriginal communities to develop their own justice systems as part of a larger commitment to Aboriginal self-determination and self-government. These rights are grounded in international and constitutional law as well as in the treaties. Aboriginal forms of justice may be as diverse as Canada's Aboriginal peoples themselves. It is a central conclusion of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada that the recognition of the Aboriginal right to self-determination, more appropriate funding allocations for services from governments, and methodical tracking of progress are the preconditions for redressing the disastrous legacy of residential schools and aiding the long process of reconciliation within Canada. Call to action number 42. We call upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal justice systems in a manner consistent with the Treaty on Aboriginal Rights of Aboriginal Peoples, the Constitution Act of 1982, and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, endorsed by Canada in November of 2012. The Commission is convinced that genuine reconciliation will not be possible until the broad legacy of the schools is both understood and addressed, 
Governments in Canada spend billions of dollars each year in responding to the symptoms of the intergenerational trauma of residential schools. Much of this money is spent on crisis interventions related to child welfare, family violence, ill health, and crime. Despite genuine reform efforts, the dramatic overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in foster care and among the sick, the injured, and the imprisoned continues to grow. Only a real commitment to reconciliation will reverse the trend and lay the foundation for a truly just and equitable nation. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com.